Daily Torah study is essential to living a meaningful Jewish life. Whatever your background or level of observance, Torah study each day engages the mind, enriches the soul, connects us to God, and gives our lives direction and meaning. But to be honest, most of us need a framework. As much as we'd love to learn every day, left to our own devices, life inevitably gets in the way. Our good intentions fall by the wayside. Hi, this is Ruvain Spolter, and I invite you to come join me in the free daily learning program you've been looking for. I call it the Mishnah Project. I created the Mishnah Project to teach daily Mishnah over YouTube. Why choose Mishnah for your daily learning? First of all, Mishnah is manageable and concise. You can learn two Mishnayot in about 10 minutes a day. The Mishnah Project is understandable and clear. You'll not only be hearing the Mishnah, but seeing the text and visual aids to help you understand the Mishnah clearly. Finally, the Mishnah Project is comprehensive. Studying just two Mishnayot a day, you'll finish the entire Shas in under six years. To join the Mishnah Project for free, simply go to mishnah.co slash join, where you'll find links to the WhatsApp group, the Telegram group, our YouTube channel, and even our podcast feed. That's mishnah with an H dot C-O slash join. And start your journey toward completing Shas today. everybody, this is Ruvain Spolter, and I'm here with RZ Weekly, your weekly podcast about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. We're here together with Rabbanit Malibravsky, who's originally from Long Island, New York, and I say this because I just want to mention that Rav Johnny Solomon is from Britain. Rav Johnny, say a few words to remind us that, to get us in the, get us in the mood. In the mood because I've got a British accent. We love British okay, accents. Well, I know if you're from Britain, you don't get that. I'll be sitting here drinking my cup of tea as we continue our weekly Is that podcast. a cucumber sandwich I see? Okay, anyway, um, today <laughs> we wanted to discuss um, the legacy, if we can, if we're worthy. I didn't really mean that in a serious way. The legacy of Habrav Aaron Lichtenstein, Zecher Tzadik Libracha. Last week was his yard site, but it was also, it was also Yom HaTzma'ud, so we talked about religious Zionist issues. But today we wanted to sort of step back and talk about uh, the legacy of Habrav Aaron Lichtenstein, both from an intellectual point of view, but even more importantly, um, from our perspective, we wanted to ask a, a really hard question to answer, which is, what was or what is Rav Aaron's lasting legacy his lasting impact on Israeli society. And I think we'd even, we, we should sort of divide that, not just Israeli society, definitely also as well, modern Orthodox society uh, as well. So I'm going to sort of turn it over to Molly and ask her that question. It's kind of a thought of experiment because in a way you'd have to sort of say, Molly, like what would life have been like or what would Israel have been like had Rav Aaron not made Aliyah, which is a really fun thought exercise to discuss because then you'd have to say, ooh, what would, uh, what would YU have been like? What would American Jewry have been like? So you can always go in that direction if you're interested. But let's focus here on Israel. What would Israel have been like had Rav Aaron not been here? And in that way, what is, what is his lasting legacy here in the Jewish state? Right, so I think that's a great question. I think to open it, I'll just very briefly talk about what I think his, um, if you had to pinpoint what elements, if, I mean, you obviously can't really narrow his contribution down into a five-minute summary or a two-minute summary, but I do want to mention the things that I think are most outstanding in his thought or his worldview, because I think when you talk about what he contributed to modern orthodoxy, both in Israel and in America, you have to understand what 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 his intellectual or philosophical legacy is, and then think about how that legacy impacted the communities both here and in, in Israel. So I think when when we think about his legacy, again, there's so much to say. You can give an entire Shir and Rosenstein's legacy, but if I had to distill it, I would say it was he was the the um, our generation's spokesperson for true whatever word you want to use, right? We call it modern orthodoxy on our podcast, centrist orthodoxy, religious Zionism, whatever it is, right? He, he After the Rav, he was the, the next voice for what I would call true centrist orthodoxy in the sense that, and I think what his genius was, was on the one hand to talk about the primacy of Torah and at the same time to accept the validity of taking in values from the secular world. So in standing in that way, I think he was able to to kind of 
buffer critique from both, the, the, meaning the standard critique of the society from both the right, which was like, why, why didn't anything but Torah, but also from the left, which is like a kind of watered down type of a more, more tepid modern orthodoxy, where, where, where Rav Aaron was the opposite of tepid, right? If I would, again, if I would say, what is his legacy? I would say it's primacy of Torah, nevertheless, value of, of, of the secular world when that secular world elevates your life um, and the way you live your life, which is something I don't think I need to elaborate on because we've discussed that quite often on our podcast. But he also had had a um, very, one of his very, very strong values was was kind of striving for excellence. He strove for excellence in his personal life. He never stopped running. He never stopped moving. And I think that that sense of always striving, and again, as and the opposite, I would say, would be a kind of more pe- te- tepid, passive type of both living in general, but also orthodoxy and religious life, I think that's another one of, of his main values. So I don't think I should say more than that because I don't want to take up too much time, but once you're given that, I, I think, oh, one more thing I think because it's really important, which is balance and complexity, right? The joke about Ravarin is you, you, he, he would like, you know, bomb on any time. I think I might have even said this in like an old RZ podcast. He, he would be on like these political Israeli talk shows and he would bomb because you need to be able to talk in sound bites, and he could not talk in sound bites. Right? Any question you'd ask him, the answer would be, "Well, there are three approaches. There's approach A, <laughs> there's approach B, then there's approach." Right? That, that was everything. Right? The ability to see life, um, as he as he quoted, uh, I forgot which poet. I can look it up. One second, I'll check. To see life complexly and to see it whole. Let me think of see see the whole expression. Um, to see life steadily and to see it whole. That's a quote from um, Arnold, Matthew Arnold, and that's very much, right, this kind of steady, holistic perspective, um, but to see the whole picture and to see the nuance and to see the balance and to see the complexity. So then if you ask me, what do I think he brought to America? I mean, what, he, what I think he brought to Israel, and again, I'm saying a lot, and I, I'll, I'll pass it along, and again, maybe these will be jumping points for, for, um, for Johnny. I think what he brought to Israel um, is two major things. One is... Well, let's a few major things. I won't limit my number. I'll just say a couple of them. One is this complex worldview, which I think the religious Zionist world needed, needs, and needed. I think that the religious Zionist world that was based on Rav Cook and that was moved forward through with Tzvi Yehuda for a lot of reasons um, has a has a um, has a nitiya. I want to say a proclivity to seeing seeing the world in sort of absolutist and black and white ways, and Rav Lichtenstein kind of pushed against that and added nuance and complexity. I think his his focus on, first of all, the, the level, the sheer level of Talmud Torah that he brought to Israel um, through his, okay, I'm going to wrap it up, through what he, through the, the, the sheer, he was just the, 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 the greatness of his, of the level of, of him as a Talmud Chacham and the, the type of Torah that he established in his yeshiva, I think was extremely valuable. And this is the last thing I'll say, is that I think we see, and again, Ruby, you're going to want to come down to nuts and bolts, but I think we see his imprint on Israeli society. It's great when I don't even have to ask my questions. You're already, you're already... <laughs> I'm anticipating. Yeah. I'm anticipating. Um, I, I think, the, for me, I think the way we see his imprint on Israeli society, Ruby, Johnny had a brilliant idea that he's probably going to say in a second when we discussed this in the beginning, so I'll leave that to him. But what I'll, what I'll say is, the amount of, the, the imprint that his Talmudim have on Israeli society, right? The impact his Talmudim have in so many areas, whether that's Yeshivot Hasdair that are founded by his students, whether that's students who are in politics, who are, who are just in, in, in the public sphere, um, who, are, who, who are just in all branches of, of, of um, Israeli society and who follow his approach to the world. And I think you can see in who they are um, his stamp, Right in those yeshivot, and if you want me to to give more examples, Ruby, I'll, I I will if you want to ask. I think through that, I think you can see that his legacies. I know I'm like anticipating all of your 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 questions, um, but I, again, I, I think it, it, in the yeshivot has dare in Supreme Court justices in um, rabbis and and um, politicians and journalists who clearly find their path is in his. I'll use his words, in his light, right? Meaning he's writing, obviously, about you know living in God's light. But I think people who live, who have been so profoundly influenced by him, I think we can see Revolutionary's impact on, on society. So now I got to cut you off. I got to stop because, like, the only thing I've ever heard you be more passionate about is perhaps Star Wars and, of course, <laughs> and, 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 and of course Princess Diana. So, Not Princess the, Diana. Oh, sorry. 
you weren't passionate about the royal family? The royal family, not just Prince. Oh, not Prince. Princess not Diana Princess. was apologize. like, you know. Cheerfully withdrawn. Anywho, uh, wow, you could like, obviously Molly has more to say. So I, I want to turn it over to Johnny. And Johnny, like, before I give Molly a hard time, or actually I don't even have to because then she's going to like just, I'll, I'll tell her to ask my questions and then answer them. I've been thinking about this since we picked this topic a lot last week. I'm wondering if it's really fair. It's a, if it's a fair question. You take someone who devoted his life to Talmud Torah. Literally, the, that was the, clearly the, 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 the main love of his life. And the main love of his life was teaching Torah to students. And he did it in the confines of a yeshiva. And he, he, was, he did it in, in the, on the highest possible level and did it for as many years as possible. Is it fair to say, okay, then what have you like? What have you done for Israeli society? You are an unbeliever. You know what I'm saying? Is that? I don't know if it's a fair question. Number one, and number two, we haven't defined the word impact either. So, with those two questions in mind, can you sort of help me understand? Do you think it's a fair question? Even, I mean, is it a fair expectation to say, well, he was great, so but what did he do? How did he change Israel? That's on the one hand, and then how do you define impact? In, the, in a way that you're going to answer it, I guess, affirmatively, if you do. Okay, so I, I'm going to step back, slightly address the question that was asked of Mali, and then begin addressing the question you've just asked me. Uh, and uh, I'm inspired by uh, some of the things that Mali said. Uh, let me just uh, reflect on often how we speak of legacies and, and, biblic, uh, and the rabbinic and Torah personalities. You know, oftentimes you'll meet a certain Rav and you'll say, you know, he's, he's a graduate of Ponovich. And, and everything that person does kind of represents a mold of Ponovich or Mira. Or why you? There's a certain uh, way of doing things and a way of being a way of thinking that's representative of the institution from which they've come from. It's not to say they don't have their own personality, but that institution very much is... is uh, what's guided and what continues to guide their their way of life and way of thinking. When I think of Rav Lichtenstein, and I wasn't worthy to be uh, a student of his, I studied in Karen but I've spent much time uh, listening and learning to his Torah. He was multifaceted. Uh, the truth is, we could talk about his um, biography, but it actually really is irrelevant because he took many different things which were important to him his love of Torah, his background, his relationship with his father-in-law. But he then created this extraordinary mold, which I'm saying, called Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. And then he owned the Torah that he learned through that unique multi-faceted uh, mold called him. And that's quite rare, where you can see how his understanding of the wider world, of literature, shapes how he thinks. You can see how his American background also somewhat shapes how he thinks. You can see how his more centrist approach and his passionate Zionism shapes how he thinks. And yet, notwithstanding those many different facets of his personality, his absolute, uh, not just uh, uh, immersion in understanding in original thinking in Torah, was was remarkable and so you have somebody who's many different parts of him who then takes torah and that shapes him and he shapes it he owns that torah absolute and when it therefore comes down to the question of what does that do in terms of israeli society you no know, go back to what mani said which is as uh, you know it, it, a lot in uh, these religious zionist world was lacking complexity um uh, there was a lot of, as you said, also sound bites. It was all about singular things. And he wasn't a singular person. And knowing that whenever he spoke, he didn't quite know what he was going to say because he brought all these different ingredients to the table. But you knew you were going to hear profound Torah, which had been shaped by an understanding of the diaspora in Israel, an understanding of modernity and traditionalism, shaped by halakha and agadah you knew that you were going to hear something which was likely different to many other people who were going to give you a singular, shallow, or institutional soundbite. And that's what made and makes his thoughts so, so exciting because he celebrated the many ingredients that made him, and that was him. 
We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back with more RZ Weekly Goodness right after this quick message. Shalom, this is Rav Johnny Solomon, and I would like to tell you about the services that I provide to men and women around the world. Firstly, if you have a she'ila, a halachic query or a halachic topic you would like to learn more about as it applies to your life, and you feel that you don't have a rav with whom you can discuss this question, I offer online halachic consultations. Secondly, if you have some theological or spiritual query, or if you're in need of some chizuk, I provide spiritual coaching. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about a particular Torah topic, I offer one-to-one learning. For each of these services, you can book an appointment for a small fee at my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, which seamlessly, with the magic of Calendly, then appears in my online calendar. And within a few minutes, you'll receive a message with a Zoom link. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you. And we're back. Speak to the second part. I was actually taking notes about what I wanted to respond to, but speak to the second part in your mind, because I'm going to come back to Mali. Is it fair to ask or to expect him to have an impact on Israeli, on, the lar- on larger society? Is that reasonable, the way Mali sort of described it? Uh, it's not, I'm not here to judge if and should and necessarily did. What I can say he's did, because when you look through even his mere literary output, I say that because ultimately so much of his teaching was, you know, from the yeshiva. Uh, I, as a non-graduate of Yeshiva Al-Zion, only have his books and his many essays, which are huge numbers, but that's still a small expression of the extraordinary output of ideas. But they talk to so many of the issues that come up in my thinking and exploration as a passionate Torah Jew in the modern world who has a connection to Israel, who, who tries to not cloister myself, but at the same time remain loyal to Torah learning and Torah values. And so whatever flashpoint of ideas, questions about uh, who is a Jew, you know, his SM brother Daniel is groundbreaking in terms of framing something which I, I know the Mamre Chazal, but nobody put it together the way he put it together with that sense of, of, of reflection in terms of what is Judaism, not in terms of Talmudic law, we knew that, but in terms of modern-day understanding of Talmudic law vis-à-vis cultural understandings of Talmudic law. Only a Jew who, who is immersed in Torah but also understands the Israeli situation, right, who is empathetic to the wider Jewish people but also insistent on the integrity of halakha, only somebody like that could write an essay. You know, his, his writings on, on Baruch Goldstein, his, his essay about an ethic independent of halakha was a, was a game changer, just in terms of taking forward a series of ideas that, again, we all knew existed, but nobody had put it together and helped us say, so what does that mean? And so, as somebody who's hungry to make sense of this rich tradition called Yadut, but also keen to understand how that interplays with other traditions and cultures and teachings. Ravaran modeled that, um, and very, very few other people did, and even if they did, they didn't do it with a level of flair and depth as he did. And it made us realize, boy, we shouldn't be so shallow, because uh, uh, this is somebody who takes his time before he speaks and writes. And too many of us are kind of knee-jerk, want, you know, pleasers, wanting to give the vort of an idea, but actually said, I want to give the depth, the meaning of a concept. Uh, and it's humbling to learn his Torah because I, I know that whenever, I, I know for years I've been buying the Orthodox Forum series and oftentimes his essays would be one of the I- introduction to those great uh, books. And whenever he'd be asked to address a particular topic, you kind of take a a breath, you'd say, I'm probably not going to understand half of what he says. I have to read it six or seven times. But I know there'll be something in here that I can take for life, and it will guide me to be somebody who is true to Torah, but also true to being a Jew in the modern world. So, And that was an amazing thing. uh, So, okay, now, I'm going to sort of play my role here, but I'm going to do it, obviously, with, with incredible sensitivity, and I guess I sort of prefaced it by saying... 
I, I wonder how fair it is to expect, you know, how much, how did it impact Israeli society? But uh, I, I want to harken back to something that Molly said, which was that he spoke like he, he, he bombed on political shows because political shows, you, you take a position, you argue your position, very clear. And, and anyone who ever heard of Aaron speak, and I was blessed to, during my year in Grus, to uh, be, be in his shir with Baba Batra, and it was, it was the first time I saw, I, I think I really understood, you know, the brisker, brisker lumdus well. It was really clear. Um, nonetheless, I, I just, looking back, have this sense like he was, he was academic, not just in his, in his, in his, writing and speaking, but in his thinking. He was an intellectual, but he was an intellectual wholly formed in an American intellectual, cultural, academic environment. And you, you took this incredibly brilliant man with, with amazing things to say, and you put him in an environment where not only doesn't he, like, you know, the, some have written about how he doesn't, like his Hebrew is not, it's just not possible to be on the level of his PhD in Milton. It's just not possible. You know, as brilliant as he was, so you can't be eloquent because you can't quote in the same kinds of ways and allude and refer and all that. But I had the sense that he just spoke a different cultural language, and and the, and the reason why that's so meaningful to me is because I think that harkens back to discussions that we've been having. That's just the Ola experience. You know, there's there's literally nothing Rabbi Aaron could have done about that reality in a sense that. And I wonder, like, we're not Israelis, so I actually did some research and spoke to an Israeli or two about this. And I wonder if, like, his ability to impact Israel was ultimately limited for that just simple reason that he was unable to speak to broader Israeli society outside of the world of ideas and outside the world of the yeshiva. So, so, and, and that's not a criticism. It's just a fact. It's a reality. God forbid. Like, I don't, I don't want anybody to come away saying I'm, you know, criticizing Ravara and I'm not in any way, you know, and it really makes me wonder, like, I remember going to RCA conferences where Ravara was speaking. The place was packed and they all wanted to hear what he had to say. And there was a buzz in the room when he got up to talk. I never experienced that in Israel, you know, and I'm sure that in the Haaretz Har was like that, but but I, I wonder, like, I, would, I wonder, Molly, if you're interested in playing that other game, what would, what would America have been like? What would YU have been like had Ravaron stayed? And maybe it wouldn't have shifted so far to the right as it has. Yeah, right. Johnny's just so, to say I, something. Can I just pick up on yeah. a really, really small bugbear? Uh, it's a bugbear, by the way. Wait, I don't speak British. What is a bugbear? <laughs> yeah. So the bugbear is you said... Well, you do talk about him and we not being Israeli. And I'd say, no, but I am. Uh, I'm not Israeli. Born in Israel, oh, yeah. but I'm Israeli. And and, it was exactly what you argued last week, so Ruby. You were yes. like, don't, don't, right. you know, your argument was come and uh, be and who and you and are. I, I mentioned that first because... No, and he did, and he, that's great. And that's that's great. His Hebrew was... A, he, his Pras Israel was for his writings. His Hebrew was probably 10,000 times better than, you know, your many Israelis' Hebrew. It's 100%. Like I didn't say on an intellectual you know. level, but... Again, I, 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 I said it's a clear. I, I, I don't know what to say, but let, let Johnny. He, was, he spoke in he spoke in an American cultural language. He would talk okay. about the illusions. Right. About so, the, my so, favorite is that he would get up in Hartzian and give a shear and talk about baseball. I'm Ron Rose, a double, you know. And he's always look at you and go <laughs> like. That he also one second, but he also used a um, I think it was a basketball metaphor. You know, about how, okay, like, happy when Ron. Everybody's happy with Ron. Okay, fine. I'm sorry. Let Johnny go, and then and then I'll say what I have to say. No, 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 no. That, that truth is that was my bugbear. But, but the reason I mentioned that it's not to be um, flippant here. I think I think it's an important realization, uh, both as uh, three of us as educators, but also reflecting here about an extraordinary Torah leader who came from the states, came to Israel. You know, you, I, I, I've I've come to the realization I can't change uh, the language that I was born into, which was English. But that doesn't mean that I can't be absolutely present and have an impact on the country that I call home. Still, though, there is this dual identity. We spoke about this, do you remember, with Etty, right? How you blend those two identities is very interesting. It, that's always going to be complex, right? And, and you, we can kind of say, but, you know, if, and, and if I was born here, I'd speak slightly differently and you and whatever. But Tachlis is, there's also a gain, and a gain of nuance. And so what you lose with one, you gain with another. And uh, you know, I think uh, 
recognizing somebody has those dual passports, both in terms of uh, citizenship, but also in terms of kind of um, cultural citizenship, is central to understanding who he was. My. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So, first of all, I want to say that when I, I, I did discuss, discuss with David and Chavez in preparation, and we talked about this, this idea of America, and he said, who says he didn't contribute to America? Could he have contributed a lot more? Oh, he definitely stayed? contributed to but America. But even There's while no, he yeah. was here, oh, right? even while no he doubt. was here, he was like, he was still looked to by all the rabbinic leaders in America, and they were thirsting for his Torah, and, you know, it's the reason they, you know, flew him in every year for the, you know, the Gush dinner, whatever it was. Oh, and, and they called just, him all the time. Yeah, and, so and, like, you know, in today's world, he was able to, to kind of give to both, but that was definitely his decision to come. And I think, okay, wait a second. I want to answer your question if you're like, oh, but he was so American and wasn't that a loss. So so I'll, I'll say two stories and then what I think about that and two quick anecdotes. Wait, wait, I'm not saying it's a loss. I'm saying that it no, prevented, but saying, it, it, it prevented Israelis from, from adopting okay. him as their, you okay. know, so, as so their two, So two answers. One is, I forgot which, in one of the people who was, many people who were giving their hispatum about, about him, one of them said, like, you know, this, he came to Shivat Arzion in 1972 when Rav Aaron starts speaking, and this is a person who's, like, immersed in Israeli society and speaks Rav Cook language, and Rav Aaron was speaking, and he's like, didn't understand a word he was saying, not because they didn't understand his language, didn't understand the lens through which he was viewing the world. But what I would argue is, that's exactly, as Johnny just said, that's the gift he brought, right? Which is what I always tell my students as Olim, which is, bring the best of another culture to to Israel and enrich Israel with that culture, right? Meaning that's part of, of the, the net gain that Johnny spoke about, which is that he brought a world that didn't exist here and he he saved Israel from, from, from Johnny had, this is what I was yeah, you, to You're going to have to explain where you see that impact of okay. Israelis quoting, other than Chaim Navon, quoting, you know, quoting conservative philosophers okay, to no, back up his word Okay, so here I'll just, first of all, Chaim Navon is also the one, I just want to say my second story, who, who wrote about how, like, the first time he opened up, not Rav Lichtenstein, but Rav Soloveitchik, he writes this in his, his book about Rav Soloveitchik, he said, my whole life, like, I learned Rav Cook, and it was all good, and then I opened Rav Soloveitchik, and finally I found a person who was speaking my language, right, mm-hmm. and he was totally Israeli, and so there are many Israelis, I think, who, Rav Lichtenstein was the same for them, where maybe, maybe when he first started talking, he, he was speaking a language that was new, Right, but all of a sudden he was opening whole whole worlds to them. Right, meaning I just had a conversation with somebody about about Rav Cook in America, and I was saying this the whole neo Hasidut in America, and the whole like they're they're looking for like a certain spirituality and a certain language that that they're definitely trying to get from Israel. Right, meaning this this cross pollination of cultures is actually valuable. So. Where do I see, so when you ask, well, where do I see Rav Aaron influencing it? So I, I think I said that a little bit in the beginning, right? I think, again, through his Talmudim, through the Yeshifot. And I think the way Johnny said that, like, the way of Lichtenstein, and this also there's talking about Rav Amital, Hamidu Talmudim Harbei. He was a Rav who didn't want people who carbon copied him. He wanted Talmudim that could stand on their own two feet. But, like, Otniel and, and um, Rav Shor's Yeshiva and, and many other Yeshivot that, they're, uh, right? They're, they're, they're these are Talmidim of Ravaron, but the Yeshivot are all different, and, they, and, they're, and they're like, their stamp is unique, right? There's a unique flavor to the, to the, to the person, but their, their, their roots are in Rav Luchenstein. And so through that, he did influence society. And the last thing I'll say is, and this is really Johnny's point, um, Johnny had mentioned this book that he'd read. What did you call it, Johnny? Stream or upstream or downstream? Upstream. Right, upstream. upstream. This idea that like, you can't measure a person's impact only or necessarily only by what they did, but you have to think about what would have been had they not been there, right? And again, for me, I, I think very much in that way. Like, I, I think about, like, again, how much nuance, complexity, Johnny had mentioned the great contributions of, of Ravaran's writing, so I, I would just add two more, which is the ideology of Hesder and a consideration yeah, of cool. uh, synthesis slash secular studies from a Torah point of view, right? So... Again, like he formulated for us, and again, I remember hearing the story about like when Hester started. We have this assumption that oh, Hester is obviously like a lechachila. When it was started, that's not true. And there were many yeshivot Hester even that were that were on the defensive. And it was Ravon who got up and said, "For my boys, it's lechachila." And he wrote a compelling article explaining why Hester is lechachila, and that is the um, watershed article that 
that that for us it's obvious like for you it's, ob- it's so obvious Ruby that like oh of course Hester is like there's no thing bidiyavet about not learning all day long now we're you know where religious Zionism is culturally in the opposite way where the Hester kids are feeling bad because they're not in the army all day long right but like it was Ruf Aaron who explained so cogently why Hesder was valuable. So there are so many pieces of Israeli society that we take for granted, I think because he formulated them. I think there are so many, again, when you think about like, what are the mainstream, like, again, you can tell me if you disagree with this point, but what does it mean to be a religious Zionist? What are the religious Zionist streams in Israel? So I'd say there's Kav, right? Which is um, the world of, 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 of Cook and his, and, and of Tzvi Huda, right? And Haramor at this point. There's Olam Hagush, right? Yeshivat Hagush. Maybe there's something that we would call, again, Hasidut, Neo Hasidut. I don't know what you want to call that stream. And then there are like you know people who like fall somewhere in the in the middle. But like, it, are, aren't those the worlds? Like when you think about religious Zionism, right? When you try to figure out like, like what what is religious Zionism in Israel? Isn't that more or less the like, the the ment- the framework through which? You kind of try to categorize it. So it's interesting because I'll t- I'll say two things. The first thing I'll say is that like I kind of see Rav Aaron as I always I think I always even you know of course during his life I saw him like from a from a modern Orthodox point of view as a as a cultural dinosaur, like he was the ideal modern yes. Orthodox where he was like cold kulo Torah, but he could also quote you know quote English literature, but he used it to ha- bring himself to a more religious passion, a religious fervor to get closer to God. That was the, the high culture that you speak about all the time. Right. right? And that's gone. It doesn't exist anymore at all that I'm aware but imagine of. imagine if he wasn't there, right? That's I don't the, know that's if it, I, it's gone. Point it's, it, my point is it doesn't, doesn't matter. I'm saying he started doing that in the 60s, right? Imagine He started if, doing that when he was raised that way. The same started, but I'm saying imagine if there was no Lichtenstein voice. If I it was just the rub, it's gone now. So I wasn't. But if it's it not gone now. We're fighting for it. You're yeah, fighting for it. I'm Johnny's fighting for it. Our, I'm, our I'm fighting for that. Fighting I, for I'm fighting for that. I, I'm Are fighting you? for high culture. Con- I think. Well, I think we're just not about now. We're culture. just. Okay. We're just fighting for. We're fighting for like don't watch trash and be. But one second. But but high culture is just a stand-in. I agree with you. He was talking. He did speak about high culture. I agree with that. But his point was. His bottom line was integrate things that are meaningful into your life and it can be if it can be meaningful it's legitimate so then we take that to the next step and then we have conversations about low culture right but i think that that's that's still Ravaron's legacy right who, who i would never that? admit to Ravaron what it is that i'm watching and ask him if that was okay i think if you can't say it, if you can't do that then i don't think you can stand by really it. you could go to Ravaron and ask him about like you would you would honestly ask about the so. things that you watch yeah wow i, okay. I think otherwise you're not as solid Again, would I feel embarrassed because I know that no, he No, I would say I'm not his comment, but I can't live up to his standards. I'm saying he spoke in a different place. Okay, can I say one thing about his standards, which was one of the most beautiful things I ever heard him say. This is the name of Rabbi Carmi. He said his standard was, I always teach my students to the highest standard, but I'm never disappointed if they can't reach that standard. Oh, what okay. a beautiful perspective, right? And I, I want to turn to two other I want, to, I want to turn to two other topics, or one specific topic. Very famously, Rabbi Aaron expressed the idea that he would not be diametrically opposed to land for peace in a theoretical way, very, very famously. And this, to some degree, alienated him from vast swaths, a large portion of the religious Zionist community. Johnny, you're, I'm sure you're, you're aware of this. Do you think that that position, which was intellectually honest but, and clearly not like, motivated in any political way, do you think that affected his ability to then have a broader impact in other areas of leadership? Um, the, sh- the short answer would be, I'm just telling my children that I'm just in the middle of a recording. It's like, it's like a the Zoom, that was like so fun. It was experiencing, you actually yeah. live in a house, the, have kids, what can you do? Darling, I'm just so I'm gonna you know, continue to talk, okay, oh, I'll, now you can answer. I'll answer okay, good. <laughs> I'll, answer qu- no, I'll, answer, I'll answer a question which is, uh, yes, absolutely, of course it did. Um, uh, of course, that those who are, uh, expressed those views, for the great majority of the religious Zionist camp, were considered to be pariahs. You know, in the UK at the time, um, uh, Lord Jakobowicz offered very similar sentiments. Rav Gorin called him the most dangerous person in the world. Um, and the, the reaction to those who took a position, they weren't exactly identical, the land for peace, for the majority, for the, for the heartbeat, shall we say, of the religious Zionist camps were... Well, you are you are traitors. You're traitors to the central value of land, land, land. And though I'm not uh, either qualified nor uh, going to speak of 
Ravaran's position, I don't want to misrepresent it. What I can say is, yeah, you lose, you lose some of your, shall we say, political land for your values, for your integrity. But what I drew, what I draw from his teachings is, for him, conscience is a pretty important thing. And, you know, if you lose uh, some fan base, if people look at you differently because you speak to your truth after considerable reflection and inner wrestling, and you say that with a sense of humility and people still can't uh, have enough patience at least to hear with you or treat you with dignity and respect, and so be it. I want to respond to something Robert you just said. stood for I, integrity, I want, yeah. morality. So, so yeah. Just because something Sorry. you said triggered me when you said that Rav Aaron essentially said the end all and be all of Judaism is not land, land, land. And and I don't know. I, Again, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not trying to put words in No, no, in but I'm saying, but what I, want, I wanted to respond to was it's very interesting what you say because I don't know. I, that might not be have been his explicit message, but I, A, you got that implicit message. And, of, and I've, clearly he was probably trying to convey that as well. That he recognized that the the exile of the religious community outside of, you know, to focus on Hitna Chalut specifically, but not other things, it could very well be like his message, like after the killing of Rabin, his message was far more able to be received. Like, you know, it might not have been a conscious message, but more of a subconscious message. Even the news that we, that today, the idea that you know, the Hezer Yeshiva and Yafo, let's, let's leave aside the violence or whatever, but there are many Hezer Yeshiva and Garinim Taranim that are building communities in central Israel and all these cities in Israel because somebody turned around and said, well, we really have to stop thinking only about land, 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 because if we lose the cities and we have, the, the, you know, have, and we, we have land, then what have we really settled and what have we really accomplished? And it could very well be that Rav Aaron's teaching and his message on that was far deeper than we realized and resonated with enough people to really make a difference. I, like, I, I just right, thought about that the way you said it. Right, I'll just briefly talk to that. Because I was, I was in Yeshiva in Kelm Biabna the year before Rabin was assassinated. And uh, in Kelm Biabna there were very active uh, moves to try and get students to go to demonstrations. Basically, it was kind of like everyone's going to these demonstrations. It wasn't, it wasn't really a conversation. Uh, and some were more peaceful and some were more tame. Some weren't less. Uh, and I was uncomfortable uh, at a number of these events. And I actually spoke to Yeshivav Kerem Biavne. And my feeling was that while I understood the default position of the Yeshiva, as a student there, they didn't understand the fact that I didn't see things exactly the same way. Now, at that point, a person can feel kind of like, is it me or is it them? I, I don't know. But then I certainly was aware to a certain level, I wouldn't say to a profound level, of the approach of Aaron Lichtenstein. And for people like me, it was like actually providing me with so much comfort. And But that's not just in terms of Israel, but also in terms of modern orthodoxy. Uh, certainly growing up in a community where there was no, not even stronghold, any hold of modern orthodoxy. You kind of look at all the books around you and all the places you go, and you wonder, is the worldview that I think I'm speaking false, because most people seem to tell me it is, and then you stumble upon his article, his article which legitimizes and gives a framework to what is modern orthodoxy, that it's an ideological community, and you say, yeah, that's me. Wow. And so me, uh, me individually, both whilst in yeshiva, uh, and since then, I found solace uh, and wisdom in his teachings to speak to a person who maybe didn't quite go with the flow around them, either in terms of a more Haredi-minded community in the UK, or more insistent-minded regarding land uh, in Kerem Biavne uh, in, in, uh, in that time at that place. All right, Molly, we only have a few minutes left. I want to bring up one other issue that somebody mentioned to me, uh, and you're, this is, gonna, is another hat that you, that you obviously wear. Uh, one Israeli said that, that when Aaron joined Forum Takana, he said that... That was, a, that was a fundamental shift because until then it was like, who are these people and what are they trying to do? So speak for a minute about Aaron, about Forum Takana, what is it for people who don't know what it is? And then about the fact that someone of Rav Aaron's stature would dedicate his time and his energy, which was a lot of time and energy, 
to, to this effort and what kind of impact do you think that had? Yeah, that's a great example. So I, I don't I, I, I don't know, you guys can correct me if I don't get exact details wrong. But We're not going to correct you because you know better than us. <laughs> yeah, but no, but I, you know, I, don't, I don't know exactly. Forum Takana is a forum that was put together by, um, I'd say, religious leaders. It's, it's a combination of religious leaders. It has on it um, mental health professionals as well. You can, you can look it up and give us the exact details. But it's a place to go, right, for people who have complaints about sexual abuse in the religious world. And they listen to complaints and they actually act on those complaints. Now, you could say, well, why do we need that? We have, um, you know, a, a, a legal system and we have a, a, um, a, um, a, a police system. Well, the reason we need it is because the legal system and the police system are, are limited in their ability to act in many ways. First of all, people won't go to them. Um, and uh, there are other issues that I won't get into. But what, what Forum Takana provided was it really, I think, was the first time that, the, that it, certainly within the religious Zionist world, that A, people were held accountable, which is very important, right? When they would, when they would find out about um, a, a sexual offender and they were convinced that that person was actually a danger to society, they, they were not afraid to act, right? And, and they were not afraid to take that person to task and to publicize that person and to limit his ability to, theoretically, or her, and I'm thinking about it, there are female sex offenders, um, their ability to hurt and harm other people. But I think most important was it gave voice to victims, right? It gave survivors, I'll use that word, I like that word better. It gave survivors a, first of all, just the sense that they were starting to be heard within the, the religious community, which is, I think, invaluable. Um, it then encouraged more survivors to speak out. And I think also it's it's really helped um, awareness of sexual abuse and violence within the modern Orthodox community. People are, start, again, I think people didn't used to believe that if a person um, was well known to have been, um, to have done good things in the world, there's no way they could wrap their heads around the fact that he could also at the same time commit monstrous acts. And we're starting to, I think that the, the activity of Forum Takana is starting, and the fact that, that rabbis were on that is starting to chip away at that. And people are starting to realize you can be a rabbi, um, you can be, and I'm going to call him out because by accident, I, I was mamlitz on him two weeks ago, and then the story scandal, you can be Yehuda Meshi Zahav, and the preponderance of evidence is, as of now, there's a lot of evidence that he is a... Okay, we're not going to go... I want to speak no, to Rabbi Aaron. I want to say that. Rabbi was one of the founders. That, he was one of the founders. No, but I want to say that because I was like, oh, everybody Yehuda Meshi Zahav is awesome, and then a lot, a lot, a lot of evidence is coming out that he is is not who we thought he was, and that he's he's committed a lot of abuse, and I think it's important to know, but again, so the fact that Rabbi Aaron was on there, gave the gravitas, right, to a, to an organization like that to be taken seriously. And the, the fact that he was willing to lend his name and to do that work, right, I think Johnny's so right, right, meaning, first of all, the fact that he was willing to lend his name gave it um, a tremendous amount of, um, of, 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 like, seriousness and respect. Nobody could question it. But Johnny's also right that the fact that he was willing to be on Forum Takana demonstrates his willingness to, yes, become involved in Israeli society when he thought that it was necessary and that was gonna, it was going to positively impact Israeli society, and I think that's a really good example. Johnny, I'll give you the last word, because uh, we're running out of time. If you don't have one, it's great, too. Uh, well, I, I, I'll just, I suppose, repeat what I said, which is he was a, a tremendous Torah scholar who was true to his conscience and, and to values and to matters of import in society, and all too often, by the way, you find people are one or the other. People are involved in social action, but okay, less in terms of Torah or tremendous Tamanich HaChamim, but uh, less involved in, in the real world and the real issues that come up. And when people would say to me, in like, you know, show me somebody who is, you know, really religious and also cares about society and actively gets involved and gets their hands dirty and prepares to take flack and criticism, you'd say, Ravaron Lichtenstein. It's an ob and and he, he, you know, in many ways, th we're talking about him as a kind of almost a pinup of uh, for, for modern orthodoxy. It's exactly what you kind of say. I, I, it's not what I tried to be. I just tried to be a person of integrity and teach to run and have many students. But the ability to point to him, to look to him, to turn to him, to listen to his voice, uh, was not just a source of chizuk for for many people of many different communities. But his very personality, his Torah personality, 
meant that uh, we were able to say, that's, that's one of my heroes. And when people got to understand what he was as a hero, they'd say, wow, this guy's, as I, as I began before, he's multifaceted, but somebody who is prepared to do so much and sometimes lose things for the sake of what is right. I, I want to end up, one thing. Can you want to say one thing? Just one, yeah. just one very quick thing, because Johnny, as you said, like Johnny just triggered it in me. I think it's really a good point that Johnny just made, which is you can have many tremendous Tamidei Chachamim, right? Around Tamid Chacham. To also be a Tamid Chacham, you could also maybe have people who are tremendous ethicists. To be also a tremendous Tamid Chacham, to be a tremendous person of ethics, to be a tremendous person of, of secular knowledge, to combine all, to be a tremendous person of depth and complexity, you can find many people, perhaps, who excel in one. To find the person who excelled in all of those, I feel like that's extremely rare. And it's very, and, and I think Johnny's right, and I, I'll end with this, when um, Shlomo Zalman passed away, Rav Aaron always needed a Rebbe. So Rav Shlomo Zalman was his, you know, there was a Rav, and then Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, and Rav Shlomo, then when Rav Shlomo Zalman passed away, Rav was looking for another Rebbe, and, and there's this story going around, which may be apocryphal, they said he couldn't find someone who also had the, the depth of personality and the, and the Torah. And I feel like, I think that's why so many people feel bereft at his passing, because he embodied all of those things that Johnny spoke about and that I spoke about, and I don't, I don't. It, it's kind of thing where like we shall not see his like again in that sense, and I think that's part of the loss. So I want to end off with a thought. Like, like what I've really enjoyed about this conversation is it's triggered so many thoughts in my mind about things that I didn't realize, and that's why I think the conversation is worthwhile, and I hope that the listeners feel that as well that they're thinking of other things. One other thing I just realized is we like we don't realize the pressure of Aaron had from his father-in-law not to come. And uh, like basically, the Rav, I'm sure, at some point told him, "What's going? The Y is going to fall apart if you if you leave us. It's not going to be the same, and you can't abandon American society." And he more or less said, "I don't know if he said it, but he said it with his actions." See ya. I got other things to do. There's there's Jewish history going on, and I have to be a part of that. And without a doubt, he paved the way for many, many, many people, rabbis, leaders, and even like religious Zionist leaders today who followed in his footsteps who said, if Aaron could leave the, be, leave, be the Rosh Hashiva of YU, yes, of course, he went to Gush and he was a great Rosh Hashiva. But if he could do it, then I'm not the guy that's going to save the world either. And I, I can tell you that, I wouldn't say from personal experience, because it wasn't my Rebbe per se, but I know for a fact that that model like, you know, was there and it was something to be aware of, something you were just aware of. And I think it's not for nothing that the, the joke goes around that you, know, you could... You, you know, you could take a street of computer programmers and alone shvut, and they could, they would be premier educators across the United States of America, or they were, or they could have been, or what have you, because he's established a model, and many, many people followed in his footsteps. So this, we, we obviously didn't get to the, the, the fascinating, tantalizing question of what would America and Jewry have been like? Would it have been different had Ravon stayed? Uh, we, I would encourage our listeners to share with us their thoughts on our Facebook page, or you can email Johnny or Molly or me and share with us your thoughts. If you have any other thoughts about this topic, we'd love to hear from you as well. I want to thank Rabbi Molly Brovsky, Rabbi Johnny Solomon. Uh, I didn't do our buyers this week, maybe next week. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I want to thank my son for our music as always. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs>